The following content is derived from the preaching ministry of Ashland Community Church in Oldham County, Kentucky. We exist to spread a passion for the supremacy of Christ in all things for the joy of all peoples. And we pray that God's grace among us would spread beyond us to anyone who happens to listen. For more information, please visit our website at ashlandcc.net. Thanks for listening. I do think that this is going to go down as probably my favorite VBS theme. It is not often that you get to preach in front of a castle, so this is, this is quite a dream. Uh, I love this era of history anyway, uh, and so, you know, it's all coming together for me. Um, but obviously, theme is indifferent. What we want is for the gospel uh, to come to the hearts of these kids. And um, this morning, we're going to continue our study through the book of 1 Corinthians. This morning, we're, we're in chapter 4. Uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 4. We're going to look at the whole chapter. And I want to talk to you this morning about the repenting church. The repenting church. And I'm, I'm going to read verses 1 through 5. I'm going to ask you to stand in reverence uh, for the reading of God's perfect and holy word. 1 Corinthians Chapter 4, verses 1 through 5. This is how one should regard us as servants of Christ and stewards of the mysteries of God. Moreover, it is required of stewards that they be found trustworthy. But with me, it is a very small thing that I should be judged by you or by any human court. In fact, I do not even judge myself. For I'm not aware of anything against myself, but I'm not thereby acquitted. It is the Lord who judges me. Therefore, do not pronounce judgment before the time, before the Lord comes, who will bring to light the things now hidden in darkness and will disclose the purposes of the heart. Then each one will receive his commendation from God. Let's pray. Father, we, we gather here and Lord, we in, in, this, in these next few minutes, we submit our lives to your word. And Lord, we ask you by your spirit to come and speak and change and do all of the things that you do in the human heart to bring us more into conformity with Jesus Christ. Lord, that is our prayer. We want to be a faithful church. We want to be faithful members of the body of Christ. And we want Jesus to be the, the focus and the source of all of our strength. And Lord, we pray that that would be so. And we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Please be seated. Well, I had a delightful lunch last week with Mark and Melissa Stingler. And in the course of our conversation, uh, the topic of what it's like growing up in the Bible Belt came up. Uh, Mark and Melissa, neither of them grew up in anything resembling cultural Christianity. Um, and so they were very curious about it. And one of the things that I'm, I'm constantly trying to communicate to people is that there are a lot of advantages to growing up in a Bible Belt context. I mean, the best way I know to put it is when you grow up a, a, a non-believer in the Bible Belt, you at least have some idea of the God that you're running away from. You know? I mean, you think about just being in complete darkness, and then you think about, well, over here, at least I know. And for me personally, at 20 years old, when I finally came to faith in Jesus, I knew who to turn to. 
I knew the God of the Bible, at least intellectually, I knew the truths of him and his character and what Jesus did so that I, I turned him. I didn't need anybody else even at that point to come tell me about him. I'd grown up in a context like that. But there's also disadvantages to growing up in a context like that. You know, the truth is, when you live in the midst of cultural Christianity, that provides cover for a lot of hypocrisy, for a lot of fake Christianity. And it is really easy to mistake associating with Jesus with actually knowing Jesus, right? You can feel really good about coming to church every once in a while and bringing our kids to VBS and kind of observing all the Christian lingo and culture without ever personally knowing Jesus Christ. And sometimes we can take false security in our proximity to Christianity when we've never had the real heart transformation. The new birth has never visited us. And that's a problem. And that's a danger. And it's something that a lot of people need to recognize. You see, there's a lot of people growing up in a Bible Belt context, and I'll just let you know that this too is still a Bible Belt context. There's a lot of people who are a lot like I was early in my life who would identify as a Christian, but they really are not living as a Christian. They are far from Christ. Everything becomes kind of murky in such a context. It's not easy to identify who's in and who's out. If you go to a nation in the Middle East that has a, a Muslim-majority government and people there are identifying as Christians, you don't really have to ask any further questions. The cost is up front, right? We know that there's no reward for them identifying publicly as a Christian. And so we're not questioning the legitimacy of their faith. Of course their faith's legitimate. They wouldn't be here if it wasn't. But in a cultural Christianity context, you can't really tell for sure. And so we tend to kind of have two opposite wrong reactions to that. On the one hand, I've seen this happen in the church. We go, well, there's a lot of cultural Christians out there. And so we begin trying to kind of add these legalistic standards to what it means to be a Christian. And so for a lot of people, what it sounds like is, well, if you were really a lover of Jesus, if you were really a follower of Christ, you would be at this church every time the doors are open. You'd be here Wednesday, you'd be here Sunday, you'd be there Sunday nights, you would never miss. I've seen that happen. That's a wrong reaction. You know, the Bible never says you're saved by your church attendance, but you see how easy it is to add that in. But then on the other hand, there's another reaction, and it too is wrong. We look out and we say, oh, well, well, these people really are saved. They just aren't living under the lordship of Jesus. So what we do is we just lower the standard of what it means to be a Christian. And we say, you can know Jesus as your Savior, but maybe you don't know him as your Lord yet. But that's okay. You're saved. You prayed the sinner's prayer when you were 10 or 12 or 8 or whenever it was. And so you're fine. Hopefully one day you'll start submitting your life to Jesus. Church, I hope I don't need to remind you this morning that God has not given us the liberty of splitting Jesus in half. You don't get to take him as Savior if he's not also Lord. Jesus Christ is Lord. Jesus Christ is Savior. He comes as a whole package. 
There's no third category. You're either a Christian or you're not, but you and I don't always see that clearly. And it's hard because listen, Christians are still capable of sin. There are people in this church who will do things that will shock us, that will let us down, that are not in alignment with the character of Jesus. Christians are still capable of sinning. And on the other hand, unbelievers are capable of external righteousness. Look at all the Pharisees that Jesus is dealing with in the New Testament. No one would have looked at the Pharisees and said, those are bad men. No, those were the upstanding citizens. Those were the people you wanted coaching your kids' little league teams. They were externally righteous, and yet they did not know Jesus in their heart. See, all of these issues are at play in this letter that Paul writes to the Corinthians. These issues keep manifesting themselves. And the reason why is because what we've seen thus far in our study is that you have a church of people, but they are not living according to the ethics, to the teachings, to the values of the gospel. In fact, they have let the world's values seep into the church. And even though they are professing Jesus, they are using Jesus to serve a worldly end. And that can happen here too. But you know what's really striking to me? I just thought about that this week. What's really striking to me is that in all of Paul's writing to this church, he never once says, you are not saved. He assumes that they are the church. He assumes that they are Christians. He calls them saints. In chapter 3, he says, you should be mature, but I am having to write to you because you are still infants in Christ, but he still acknowledges that they are in Christ. And he is pleading with them on the basis of the gospel to repent and get right, to repent and return to the way of Jesus. And so what do we make of that? What do we make of Paul's approach? Church, I think if we're learning from this, and that's our goal, right? When we begin studying a book of the Bible together, we're trying to learn. We're trying to say, God, what do we need to know in our church based upon this letter, based upon your word? And I I would say that one of the things we should learn from this is that we as the church should be very slow to conclude that a church member is not in Christ. We should be very, very slow to ever make that conclusion. But here's another thing. Because at times we do have to make that conclusion, don't we? And this is where this thing comes in. What, this, what Paul's approach is teaching us is that the authenticity of someone's faith is not measured by the absence or presence of sin in their life, Instead, the authenticity of faith is measured by our willingness or our refusal to repent of sin when it comes to light. Isn't that what Jesus teaches us in Matthew? He says, you see a brother in sin in the church, you go to him and you tell him the offense. If he refuses to repent, what do you do? You take two or three witnesses with you. 
If he still refuses to repent, you bring him before the church. And if he still refuses to repent, then you treat him as an unbeliever. You see, here's the truth. We are sinful people. The issue is not, is there any sin in anyone's life? Can I just go ahead and answer that question for everybody here today? There is sin in your life. There is sin in my life. We are in a process of being conformed into the image of Jesus, which means that until we die, until the day of glory, we will be finding out new pockets of pride and new pockets of wrong desires and treasuring the wrong things and idolatries. We are going to be discovering those things all the way until that end. The issue is not, is there sin? The issue is, are you willing to repent of it? That's the question. That's why Paul is laboring with this church in this letter, and he is pleading with them to repent. He is telling them, your behavior is not consistent with the gospel. He is assuming they're Christians because the only way it's possible to repent is in the power of Christ. Perhaps you're here today, and you're like I was at an early stage in my life, and you're just, you've been around Christianity, but you're not a Christian. Well, our prayer for you is that today would be the day of salvation. Our prayer for you is that today you can really know Jesus. Today you can repent of your sin, and if you ask Christ, He will come His Spirit will enliven your heart, your eyes will open, and you will behold His glory like you've never seen it before. He has paid the penalty for sins on the cross. He has made a way for sinners like you to be saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. But maybe you're here today, and you're a Christian, and there's just been some sin reigning in your heart could be a variety of, of ways. Of, uh, there's, there's all kinds of ways that sin can reign in our heart. And I, I want you to hear me. When, when you're there and the Word of God confronts you in your sin, that is not harsh. That is not mean. That is mercy. When the Word of God confronts us, it is the Holy Spirit giving us a way to return to God providing an invitation to repent because Jesus didn't just pay for the sins that you committed before you came to know him. Jesus, if you are in Christ, paid for all of our sins, past, present, and future. And we can be forgiven and we can find his mercy. And so the way we're going to look at this passage today, because we're a church and Paul's writing this to a church, and we recognize that what Paul's doing is he is laying out areas where this church is in sin. And church, I just want to make it known that all these areas are common. <laughs> these are common areas where the church falls into sin. And so I want us to look at this passage from that lens today. These are three common areas of sin for church members. And the first one in verses 1 through 7 is the sin of pridefully evaluating others. Pridefully evaluating other people. Look with me in verse 1. Paul says, this is how one should regard us as servants of Christ 
and stewards of the mysteries of God. Moreover, it is required of stewards that they be found trustworthy. But with me, it is a very small thing that I should be judged by you or by any human court. In fact, I do not even judge myself. And so we recognize that this church is evaluating or judging Paul, and they find him lacking. So, so they're looking at Paul, and we don't know all the details, but they're looking at Paul, and they're, they're somehow concluding that Paul doesn't add up, that Paul's not that impressive, that Paul's ministry's not that powerful. Maybe there's whispers about sin that they're accusing Paul of, but they are evaluating him, and I would argue that they're doing so pridefully. In fact, we've already seen this emphasis here in this passage. We've already seen three times Paul accusing them of boasting. In chapter 1, verse 29, in chapter 1, verse 31, and here, and in, in right before this, in chapter 3, verse 21, he says, you've been boasting. What is boasting? Boasting is the prideful desire to exalt ourselves above other people. So what do I do? I, I, I point at some superficial thing that makes me look better than other people, and I boast about it. So I go around talking. By the way, social media is a huge avenue for boasting today, isn't it? Well, you, you want to see boasting? Just everybody get out your phones right now, pull up whatever you're on, Facebook, Instagram, and just start reading. Don't do that, really. <laughs> just your Bible app on your phone right now. But, but boasting is a huge part of the human nature because that's what sin is. What is sin in essence? Sin is this desire to make ourselves bigger than we really are, to deify ourselves, to have other people point at us and admire us, to, to be greater, more powerful, to have more money, prettier, whatever it is, smarter. And Paul says, that's what you're doing to this church. He says, you have been boasting, but here's the deal. Boasting, listen to me, boasting never exists alone. Boasting is always accompanied by another human behavior, belittling. You see, if the goal is for me to exalt myself above everyone else, it doesn't really matter to me how I do that. I can either raise myself up or I can lower you. Either way, if the end result is that I'm greater than you, I've accomplished my goal. They always come together. Because if the goal is superiority, it doesn't really matter how you get there. Well, this church is doing that. They are belittling, in this case, they are belittling Paul. He is the target. Verse 3, it is a very small thing that I should be judged by you or by any human court, Paul says. Now his response kind of comes before this. Look at verse 1. This is how one should regard us. In other words, if you want to evaluate me, Paul says, as a minister of the gospel, Throw away whatever superficial standard you're using and evaluate me based on two things. Am I a servant of Christ? Am I a faithful steward of the mysteries of God? Paul says, that's really the only reason I'm here. What is it, what is it to be a steward? It is required in verse 2 of stewards that they be found trustworthy. Paul says, listen, ministry isn't a popularity contest. 
Ministry isn't about getting people to like me or to praise me or to celebrate me. Paul says ministry is about faithfulness. I am a servant of Christ. Now, we see that word servant, and we're like, man, I don't want to be a servant of anything. What we don't understand is that that word was, was a high position in Paul's mind. Because it's all about who it is you're serving. And for Paul, the place of greatest privilege was to be a servant of Jesus Christ. Paul says, that is what my whole life is about. So evaluate me based on that. Am I living in a manner that is consistent with the character of Christ? And am I proclaiming a message that is faithful to the gospel of Christ? Because that's what he means by stewards of the mysteries of God. A mystery there, we we see that word and and we think like Agatha Christie, something I haven't found out yet. And that's not what mystery means in the New Testament. In, In the New Testament, when you see mystery... It is a reference to what, we used, to what we used to be in the dark about, but what God has now revealed in Christ. And we used to not know. For history, for, for a long time in history, people did not know the, the, the whole story of what God was doing in Christ. But in Jesus, God has revealed it to us. We are now stewards of the mystery. Our goal is to now make known the mystery. We want to proclaim the mystery. And Paul says that's what this is all about. Here's what I know. If you are anything like me, you really like being liked. <laughs> Right? Who, who doesn't want to be liked? Who doesn't want to be liked? But here, here's what you've got to understand. If you are a Christian in any type of leadership, whether it's leading your home, leading at a workplace or at a school or just a Bible study or anything, leading your family, leading the church, popularity and being liked can never, ever, ever become your number one priority. It simply can't be. This does not give you an excuse to be harsh or domineering. Paul later on is going to model in this chapter, he's going to model for us what it looks like to be gentle with people who are living in rebellion to Christ. He's a gentle truth teller. But the the idea that we are supposed to be liked and everything we do is calculated toward making people like us, that will lead you to be unfaithful to Jesus Christ and to the message that Christ has entrusted us to proclaim. Because here's the reality. The truth hurts. And if you are going to speak the truth compassionately and clearly, people are not going to always like it. And you've got to be okay with that. And let me speak to parents for a minute. Because this applies just as much in the context of parenting. Parents, stop worrying about whether or not your children like you. Just stop worrying about it. If you love them, if you will devote your life to protecting them, to speaking the truth to them, to standing up to them when their immature desires are way out of balance, if you will devote your life to that, your children, it won't matter if they like you because they will love you. 
they will respect you. They will understand, maybe not in the immediate, but one day they will come to realize what you've done for them and they will be grateful. We can't live our lives trying to make people like us. And that's what Paul says here. In fact, he says, listen, there are certain evaluations that I'm not even going to think about. Look at verse 3. With me, it is a very small thing that I should be judged by you or by any human court. At the end of the day, Paul says, there is no human court ultimately that I'm going to stand before. And he says, I don't even judge myself. So he eliminates two evaluations, he says, that don't ultimately matter. The evaluations of other people and his own evaluation. In fact, I do not even judge myself. Verse 4, for I am not aware of anything against myself, but Paul understands that we can be self-deceived. So you may walk around going, I've done nothing wrong. I've done nothing wrong. But listen, look at what Paul says. But I am not thereby acquitted. It is the Lord who judges me. Whose opinion ultimately matters? Every time I read this passage, I think about this 90s era Tupac song called Only God Can Judge Me. Don't listen to it. (laughs) Not recommending it. But, But I think about it because in the song, and I grew up listening to it, in the song, it's kind of that, you can't judge me, God's gonna judge me. Like, that's good news for Tupac. And I thought a lot of people say things like this, like, hey, you, you can't judge me. Only God can judge me. Like, that's good news. But listen to me. That's not necessarily good news. It is only good news if you are in Christ. God is not softer on your sin than the people around you. God doesn't have a lower standard. You can't hide in comfort behind the reality that the God of this universe is one day going to judge you because that is not comfortable. That is not good news. Look at verse 5. Therefore, do not pronounce judgment before the time, before the Lord comes. God is going to judge all things one day through Jesus. Look at what he's going to do who will bring to light the things now hidden in darkness and will disclose the purposes of the heart. Then each one will receive his commendation from God. You can only judge me based on what you can see. God can judge me based on what is hidden and what no human eye can see. And Paul is confident that he will meet the acquittal in that judgment, not because Paul himself stands blameless, but because Paul is in Jesus Christ. And he understands that Christ is his only hope. You see, the issue in this whole scenario is found in verse 6. Paul says, I have applied all these things to myself in Apollos. So all that he's teaching about God's judgment You see, it seems as if Paul and Apollos are the subjects of these these prideful evaluations. And so Paul says, look, I've already applied all this to me and to Apollos for your benefit, brothers. That, here's the purpose, that you may learn by us 
not to go beyond what is written, that none of you may be puffed up in favor of one against another. This is the issue. The issue is that their judgments are, they're making them up based on worldly standards and superficial criteria. The issue is that their judgments are not based upon what is written, the Word of God. At the end of the day, that is the standard. That is the only way to know God's mind on any matter because God has revealed it to us. Now, don't, don't read this and conclude that what Paul's saying here is that we should never evaluate one another. That's not what he's saying. In fact, you're going to see in the coming weeks that Paul is about to give this church specific instruction on what to do when there's a sinner in their midst. And when there's a sinner who refuses to repent in our midst, evaluation is required. Judgment is required for us to be faithful. The issue here is not whether you judge or whether you don't. The issue is what standard are you using? And what end are you pursuing? Are you using the standard of God's word? And is the goal of your judgment to lead someone to life and repentance to Christ? Not to exalt yourself above others. Revelation, not superficial standards or personal preferences, is what is required for us to evaluate one another. And then in verse 7, he returns to this theme of boasting. For who sees anything different in you? Why are you exalting yourself? What sets you apart from others is what he means by that question. What do you have that you did not receive? If then you received it, why do you boast as if you did not receive it? How could anyone who is hoping in Christ boast about anything? Church, how is that possible? Our hope is Christ. To come to Jesus, the first admission is that I am broken. I am bankrupt. I am lost. I am under the condemnation of God. I need Jesus to save me. I can't do anything on my own apart from him. There is no one good. No, not one. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. If that's true, if everything I have today is the result of God's mercy to me in Jesus... What basis do I ever have to walk away from that and boast and claim that I am somebody on my own? That's what Paul's questioning. Listen to me, church. Our view of other people, how we view other people, the people around us on a daily basis, is a huge test for human pride is huge. Listen, if you struggle with giving other people the benefit of the doubt when they make a mistake or when they make a wrong step, if you seek faults in other people, if you meet somebody and the first thing you're thinking is what's wrong with these people, if you view other people who are gifted as competition and you secretly want them to fail, if you delight in putting others down, if you're constantly comparing yourself to other people, those are signals that your heart is not right. And you cannot love people if that's the way you think about them. It's impossible to love the people that you're comparing yourself to in that way. And here's the beauty. Here, here's the good news. If you struggle here, join the club. 
right? We all struggle here from time to time. And if you struggle here, the good news for you is that God gives you everything you need in Jesus Christ to repent and change. And that change doesn't happen overnight. It is not an easy, quick process. But God in His mercy will lead you to change. He will help you love people if you seek Him. But here's the second thing we see. The second sin that this church needed to repent of. Choosing now over inheritance. Look at verse 8. He says, already you have all you want. Already you have become rich. Without us, you have become kings and would that you did reign so that we might share the rule with you. This is Paul and he's, he's speaking a little sarcastically here. See, these are probably boasts that were coming from people in this church who, who, who are trying to live for the now. Do you see the repetition of the word already? Already you have all you want. Already you have become rich. You are seeking the now. You are living for the present. You are trying to get everything and you want it right this moment. And Paul says that's a danger. That's a problem. There's this story in the book of Genesis, maybe you're familiar with it. It's about Isaac's two sons, Jacob and Esau. And the, and the Bible tells us that Jacob was really gentle. And he kind of associated more with his mom and household labors. And Esau was rough, and he was a hunter, and he was skilled, and, and he was more favored by his father. Esau was the firstborn. So he was supposed to get the inheritance. He was the legal heir of the birthright. And one day he's out hunting. And imagine, you know, this is how I felt last night after being here all day yesterday. I was hungry. And that's the way he felt. He, he was out hunting all day and he, he comes in and Jacob is, you walk in, you ever walked in and just smelt the aroma? Jacob's got this pot of stew. And Esau's been out hunting all day. The conditions are perfect, right? And he says, oh, I'll do anything if you give me a bowl of that. And Jacob was sly. And, and, and he tricked him. And he said, yeah, give me your birthright. And I'll give you this stew. And Esau said, oh, sure, I'll give you anything. Anything for that stew. And he traded his birthright for a bowl of stew. And we read that story, and most of us read it. And if you're familiar with it, your reaction is probably, what an idiot. Isn't it? Who would do that? Who would do that? Who would trade their birthright, their inheritance for a bowl of stew? His stomach is going to be growling again in a few hours. And yet... There's a reason that story is in God's Word. Because that story is about us. Because that story describes what happens every time we trade immediate gratification for eternal blessing. Church, don't think you've never been an Esau. This church is eat up with Esauism. 
They want it all now. They are obsessed with the world. They are obsessed with now. They have uncritically absorbed the values of their culture. They want to be kings now. They want to be rich now. They want the power now. They want people to look at them and recognize how great they are right now. And we have the same problem. We have the same problem. What do we learn in our culture? What do we learn by our economy? What do you learn by the commercials that you watch on television? You know what you learn? You know what I learn? You know what we absorb without even thinking about it? We learn that the secret to well-being and happiness comes in accumulating and consuming as many things and as much product as we possibly can get our hands on. You want to be happier? You better get the newest you better get the biggest. You better get the most expensive. You, you're not going to be happy in your home until you have that like all the other people on your street. You're not going to be happy until your car does that. Over and over and over and over again, we are seeing those advertisements. We are absorbing that message. And don't you think, church, that that never affects your way of thinking? It absolutely does. But listen, that message is not the gospel. That message contradicts the gospel. The gospel tells us what? Jesus, you are my satisfaction. Jesus, in you I find all that I need. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. If I have Christ, I have everything. Praise the Lord, all I have is Christ. Do you see how those two messages don't go together? And Jesus teaches us, don't store up treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal, but store up for yourself treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroy and where thieves can't break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Our world tells us to put all the emphasis on the now, all the emphasis on the already. You can be kings now. You can have it all. And look at Paul's response. It's the same message that this church is, is absorbing. Verse 9. We're going we're to get through this whole block to verse 13. For I think that God has exhibited us apostles as last of all, like men sentenced to death, because we have become a spectacle to the world, to angels and to men. Paul says, look at our suffering. We are fools for Christ's sake. Get a sarcasm. But you are wise in Christ. We are weak, but you are strong. You are held in honor, but we in disrepute. To the present hour, we hunger and thirst. We are poorly dressed and buffeted and homeless, and we labor working with our own hands. When reviled, we bless. When persecuted, we endure. When slandered, we entreat. We have become and are still like the scum of the world, the refuse of all things. Paul says, ministry in this life, following Jesus in this life, is supposed to look a lot more like my life than yours. That's what Paul says to them. 
Now, he's getting this right out of Jesus' teachings. What did Jesus tell us? Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven, for so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. And Jesus can go on after that and say, and so they crucified me. Paul is criticizing this church's tendency to invert what God has promised. You know, church, that this world is full of trial. It is full of conflict. It is full of heartache. And we do the best we can. But we are not pursuing anything ultimately in this life that this life can bring us. Our reward is 100% eternal in the heavens. God is preserving it for us. And so the way that we endure the hardships that we face in this world as we go about ministering the gospel and seeking to be faithful stewards of the mysteries of God, we endure these hardships by looking forward not to the now, but to the not yet, to what God has promised us. What is our life focus? The attempt to have it all now is not the way of Christ. What are we focused on? Paul says, focus on the promises. But here's the third thing we see in verses 14 through 21. This church was scorning the church. Look at verse 14. He says, I do not write these things to make you ashamed, but to admonish you as my beloved children. Here's that gentle tone. Paul says, I'm not trying to shame you. I'm not trying to call you out. I'm not trying to publicize your error, but I am admonishing you as children that I love. For though you have countless guides in Christ, you do not have many fathers For I became your father in Christ Jesus through the gospel. What's Paul saying? He's saying, I am your spiritual father because I am the one who first brought the gospel to you. I preached the gospel and you believed. So as a father, Paul says, look at what he says in verse 16. I urge you then, be imitators of me. Isn't that what fatherhood is? Fatherhood is imitate me. And if you are in Christ, imitate me as I imitate Christ. That's what Paul says in another place. Spiritual fatherhood's the same. This is why I sent you Timothy, Paul says. My beloved and faithful child in the Lord. So Timothy is like the big brother in this scenario. You want to see someone who has followed me? I'm going to send you Timothy and he will reinforce what I'm telling you to do. He is my beloved and faithful child in the Lord to remind you of my ways in Christ as I teach them everywhere in every church. Paul says, I'm not teaching you anything different than what I teach everywhere I go. It's only one gospel. It doesn't change. Some are arrogant 
as though I were not coming to you. Now, Paul is sticking with the analogy of fatherhood. And if you, if you don't catch that, you're not going to understand what he means when he takes this tone at the end. He says, but I will come to you. I'm coming. I'm going to visit you if the Lord wills. And I will find out not the talk of these arrogant people, but their power. Fathers, you ever said, don't make me come up there. Right? Don't make me get home and have to see what you're saying I'm going to see. That's what Paul's saying. Hey, you, you, you can talk big, Paul says, but I'm coming. I'm going to find out myself. And look at what he says. For the kingdom of God does not consist in talk, but in power. You can talk all you want. But the gospel is the power of God for salvation. Verse 21, what do you wish? Shall I come to you with a rod or with love and a spirit of gentleness? This is the fatherhood analogy. He's talking not about a literal rod, but a figurative rod. Am I going to come with my derived apostolic authority? Am I going to have to come and discipline you? Or am I going to be able to come with love and a spirit of gentleness? He says the choice is yours. The choice is yours. Now you may have noticed that I said that their sin here was scorning the church. And as we went through those verses, you might be wondering, well, that doesn't really say anything about the church. They're not scorning the church. They're scorning the apostle. Well, I got reasons for that. I would argue that the ministry of the apostle now resides not in one individual person, not in the pastor. The ministry of the apostle now resides in the church, in the church body. We are the ones who are accountable to one another. The spirit of gentleness and the discipline now happens at a church community level. We are the family of God. That's what the Bible says. You know, it's fascinating to me that the Bible never says the church is like a family. That's not what it says. We're not just like a family. We are a family. We are the family of God in Christ. We are, we are spiritually brothers and sisters, children, father, mother, son. All of those things, all of those relationships, Jesus taught the same thing. They said, hey, Jesus, your, your mother's out here. She wants to talk to you. And Jesus said, those who do the will of God, those, that's my mother and my father and my brother and my sister. This isn't figural. It's quite literal. It's as literal, literal as it can be. You don't know how, how do you be a Christian? Imitation, discipline, at times rebuke, all in the context of the community and the body of Christ. The question is, are you open to that? Have you opened your life to receive that kind of love from the people in this body. You know, it requires us being open and honest about our sin, and it can be a terrifying thing because that means vulnerability. Because as soon as I reveal something about myself, as soon as I tell you one of my struggles, I am now, I am, I'm now, I feel naked. I, I am exposing myself for someone else to see. And that's hard. But what do families do? Families know each other's secrets. Right? 
We are the family of God, church. That's the kind of life that we're supposed to be living. Martin Luther, when he started the Reformation, one of my favorite quotes, it was part of his 95 Theses, he said, when our Lord Jesus said, repent, he meant that the whole of the Christian life should be repentance. He was responding to the error first that bought repentance because that was what the Catholic Church was teaching at that time, that you could purchase repentance. And he says, no, no, no. But also to the error of thinking that repentance was a one-time thing and once you've done it once, you don't ever have to repent again. And Luther was saying, no, that's not what the Bible teaches. The whole of the Christian life is repentance. We should be repenting every day. We wake up and we reflect back on the day before and we recognize that we lost our temper or we, we were prideful or we judged someone or we looked at someone in a harsh manner and we repent, we confess it to God. And if necessary, we call that person and we confess it to other people. That's what the Christian life looks like. Church, let's pursue a culture of repentance. Let's commit to confessing our sins to the Lord and to one another. And if we're going to commit to that, then we also have to commit to a willingness to forgive one another and to reconcile with one another when that happens. Because that's the gospel. And that's the only way to be the family of God. Let's pray together.